we start with the chronically congested Massey Tunnel. Do you commute through that tunnel during rush hour every day? You have my sympathy. When are they going to replace this thing? Now, I asked Transportation Minister Rob Fleming that question the other day. Here's what he told me. We don't think that commuters should pay for it. That was the B.C. Liberal model. It would be tolls. You know, commuters living out in, in, in Delta and uh, south of the Fraser would be paying, you know, over a decade, maybe twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 of their income, which should be going towards their housing and other parts of their lives that they're trying to make more affordable. So it's a different model. We don't, we reject the toll model. We want the partnership with Ottawa. They never pursued one. And I think we're getting closer. Okay, it's uh, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming on the show recently saying that looking for the feds to put some money on the table here to replace the Massey Tunnel. Okay, let's get the latest on this now and speak to Ian Payton, B.C. Liberal MLA for Delta South. He's been an advocate on this file for a, a long, long time. Ian, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, I understand that there is a plan, right? There is a business plan to replace the Massey Tunnel. It's been submitted to Ottawa, but it's secret? Is that What's the deal here? Well, it seems like it's secret. Uh, you know, Mike, as you know, the Massey Tunnel is a huge issue in our local newspaper in, in Ladner and Tawasson and North Delta called the Delta Optimist. And they've constantly got uh, articles in there. One of the latest ones that uh, we just saw is the business case for the George Massey Tunnel was actually submitted way back in December of uh, 2020. They promised it in the fall of 2020. So where, where the heck is it? It's gone before cabinet, I believe, with the provincial government. They forwarded on to uh, the federal government. But the public remains totally in the dark as to what's happening with the future of this George Massey Tunnel replacement. Okay, I've just been texting with the Transportation Minister Rob Fleming this morning, and he confirms that, yes, Ottawa has been given the business case to replace the Massey Tunnel. It does include a preferred option on how to replace this tunnel. So I guess in this secret plan, it it reveals, would they build a bridge? Would they build another tunnel? Uh, that's in there, right? Like, that is in this plan, but it has not been released to the public, correct? Correct. And, I mean, yeah. everybody would like to know what the preferred option is. I mean, Lord knows we've been to many, many, many hundreds of meetings over the last 10 years about this project. You know, it's been done by two major consulting firms, engineering firms, that came up with five different options. And every time they came up with the option that a bridge was the best option environmentally without having to, to deal with environmental issues of a, of a massive concrete tube going into the Fraser River. And Tawasson First Nations have been the first ones to stand up and say, we do not want to see a massive concrete tube in, in the 2020s as opposed to 1959 where people didn't think much about salmon and sturgeon and, and the marine life in the Fraser River, and they do not want to see a massive tube in, in, in the river. I'm kind of surprised that they're even thinking about a replacement tunnel, like another tunnel under the river, because wouldn't you have to, like, how would you do that without disturbing environmental habitat and, like you said, migrating salmon? Wouldn't there be, like, machinery in the river, dredging (laughs) it, digging it up? Like, how would they do that? Well, you know, Mike, if you look back at the old black and white photos of how they did it in 1959, there was massive barges and cranes and things in the middle of the river. Well, now there's major marine traffic in that river with between commercial uh, fishing fleet, uh, you know, cargo ships going up the river, all sorts of things. You know, the, you actually have to dig a trench in the bottom of the river. Think about how disturbing that would be to marine life. Dig a trench, fill it full of a uh, huge rock, and then set the concrete tube on top of that trench and then cover the top of it with uh, massive heavy concrete as well to keep it from floating upwards. Um, you know, the bridge replacement would go right over top of the existing tunnel. A new tunnel will go about 75 meters to the east of the existing tunnel, which to me goes through part of Dees Island uh, Metro Park. Uh, it'll interrupt farmland on the other side in Richmond with uh, Richmond Country Farms. Um, uh, I certainly think the bridge is a better option. Okay, yeah. Now, and the previous government, you heard the Rob Fleming references, did prefer the bridge. And actually, you guys started building the bridge. That is still your preferred option, right? A bridge. Absolutely. Yeah, that's my personal preferred option. Would, it be, a, would it be a toll bridge? You guys wanted a toll bridge. Is that still the plan? That was originally the plan, but of course now, 
uh, yeah, it, it would not be a toll bridge moving forward because obviously the federal government uh, is willing to get involved with this thing. And uh, with a possible federal election coming up this fall, who knows, there could be some, uh, some fun money uh, thrown our way in B.C. to replace this thing. <laughs> you think so? You, you think, think so? You think, yeah, think no Trudeau, kidding. Trudeau's going to come out here with some money. Yeah. Let me quickly get back to the fact that we spent $100 million. We, we had the bridge actually going. It was up and going. We were putting in piles. We were moving hydro lines. We were brought all that sand in to preload the, the widening of the highway and whatnot. You know, there's contracting companies actually got hammered when they said, no, the, the, the project is killed. It's done. Yeah. People had to be laid off. Then they, the NDP say, well, let's play around. We'll, we'll put $40 million into improving the lighting. And that's all we've seen so far is $40 million to improve the lighting in the tunnel. Yeah. And now they've announced that they're going to uh, spend a bunch of money on the Richmond side. Do you see right. politics here? The Richmond side to improve the interchange uh, at the Steveson Highway on the, on the Richmond side what, of the tunnel. What's your point about politics? Well, you know, suddenly uh, the Richmond riding has moved over to NDP ridings instead of our riding, so suddenly they're getting some gifts over there to uh-huh. improve their transportation. Uh, yeah, yeah well, that sounds very familiar, it's ever thus in B.C. But let me play this for you. <laughs> I, I know about those um, LED lights they installed in the tunnel, and most people seem to think that that's improved the lighting in the tunnel. I, I've heard a, a minority kind of opinion uh, saying they didn't like it. But let me play this here for you. This is another comment from Rob Fleming, the B.C. Minister of Transportation, and he's talking here about some of the improvements that you just referenced here to improve the traffic flow through the tunnel. Have a listen. We actually started a, a, a Steveston interchange improvement package. You may have saw that last week. We put that out the door. We're going to tender on making traffic flow better uh, in and out of the tunnel. There'll be some transit yeah. priority lanes, bus on shoulder paving, on and off ramp improvements. So that's, that's interim stuff uh, that is necessary but we want uh favorable treatment from the feds on 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 the big on the big prize which is a replacement uh for the tunnel it's uh, 1959 uh let me do the math here it's uh 63 years old okay do you think the traffic flow through the tunnel has improved ian payton well how could it mike like they can talk all they want about improvements on the south side or the north side with interchanges but as long as the tunnel is two narrow lanes going north and two narrow lanes going south the congestion's never going to get any better it's no wider it's no higher so you know uh, you you can put all the lighting you want in there but once fall comes and people are back to work after covid and kids are back in school we're going to see major con- congestion again for that tunnel just on the weekend mike you wouldn't believe how many times there's crashes in that tunnel on the weekend there was a gentleman supposed to meet me at my farm he was an hour and a half late i said what the heck happened he says i was sitting in a lineup trying to get through the tunnel because of a car crash my guest liberal mla ian payton phone lines are open star 9898 on your cell steve and ladner hey steve hi michael this one's real passionate for me i've been in ladner for almost 30 years I quit my job in Burnaby. First off, I bought an electric car to use the HOV lane. That didn't make any difference. So I ended up quitting my job, took a job here. That cost me a lot of time and money. Um, how, do you, how do you have, you have an accident in a tunnel, all the toxic stuff. At least if there's a bridge, people can get away. I think they're trying to do this. They're going to do a tunnel. It's going to go for environmental review. They know it's going to get rejected, and then they're going to have to start all over again. So they're not going to oh. do anything for another 10 years. I think the original plan, I'd be driving that tunnel, I think the new bridge in two years from now, if they would have just kept with the original one. Well, yeah. Did you, did you quit your job because of the tunnel? Yep. Yep. Wow. Why? Why? Because the traffic was so brutal? You can't spend three hours of your life driving every day just to Burnaby. You know, sometimes it was 45 minutes, sometimes it was an hour. You know, hour and a half. Like, yeah. you know, I can imagine living downtown where you got to go back over the Oak Street Bridge and then over the Gravel Bridge with all the bike lanes. You know, what, what's wrong with, with these people? And then they know they're going to fail the environmental review because they've got to dig up the riverbed, which is going to destroy the salmon. Okay. So they're going to fail the environmental review, and then they're going to have to go back to the drawing board, but the drawing board's already finished. It's just ridiculous politics, man. Okay, thank you for the call. Uh, well, Ian Payton, if they do opt to build a new tunnel, who's to say that it won't pass an environmental review? I mean, can they not just sort of do a bore the tunnel right under the river and not disturb the river at all? Is that an option, or...? Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate the gentleman calling. I mean, he 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 hit all the 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 points. He checked all the boxes with, 
you know, what the reasons are, why. And, you know, it's interesting, Mike, before I get to your question, uh, yeah. even in Delta, when I was on city council, you wouldn't believe how many top-notch people we had that actually packed it in with the city of Delta and, and took jobs in Burnaby or Vancouver because they were sick and tired of having to try and get through that tunnel morning and night to get back to where they lived in Vancouver. So they'd rather work on the side that they, they live on the uh, the north side of the Fraser River. But getting back to your uh, your question yeah. uh, about the tunnel, um, you know, to put in a deep board tunnel on very soft um, soil in that general area, uh, you would have to start the tunnel, like, so far back, um, then you're really getting into farmland problems because you can't just go, you know, straight down and up again. You'd have to mm. have a massively long approach to a deep board tunnel underneath oh. the river. Oh, man, that sounds brutal. Okay, let's go to Mike on the line in Surrey. Hi, Mike. Yeah, hi, Mike. Hi, Ian. Uh, a bridge is the way to go uh, all the way. I mean, I, I owned a trucking company for over 25 years, and the biggest hassle was, uh, say, you have dangerous goods, commercial vehicles, okay? You have to go all the way around the uh, to the Alex Fraser Bridge, uh, deal with the scale there, and uh, and then go, say, out to Delta Port or something like that. Um, here, if, a, if you had a bridge, you just go straight over. It saves an enormous amount of money. I mean, we'll, we'll talk in the tens of millions, if not more than that. And uh, didn't the liberal, previous liberal uh, government do, uh, do the feasibility studies, everything like that, for a bridge? And Did it's you? all been taken care of already? I'll, I'll ask Ian Payton that in a sec. Did you, um, you, you cannot drive dangerous goods through the tunnel. Is that, cor- is that correct? Well, correct. that's right. Like, uh, yeah. like for example... For example, we had we had work with with BC Ferries, which their their plant is on Rice Mill Road, right by the tunnel, but on the Richmond side. If we carried life rafts, because uh, they have to replace the life rafts every year, um, we have to go all the way around to the Alex Fraser Bridge. I mean, that's a, a twenty minute drive, making it say an hour, hour and a half. Okay, Mike, thank you very much for the call, Ian Payton. That gentleman ticks all the boxes as well. You know, all the fuel that comes up from Washington State to go to the Vancouver Airport, that has to go over the the, uh, Alex Fraser Bridge. It can't go through the George Massey Tunnel. Even farmers and farm equipment. We have farmers that farm in Richmond and in Delta, and in order to get their farm equipment, they can't go through the George Massey Tunnel. They have to go over the Alex Fraser Bridge. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons why a bridge is, is certainly the better option. Okay, let's go to Ed in South Surrey. Hi, Ed. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ian. Hey, uh... Uh, best thing about retirement is not having to fight my way through the Massey Tunnel as I did for 30 years. Um, <laughs> my big fear here is that because the tunnel, which is my preferred option, was the preferred option of the previous government, that uh, the NDP are going to uh, go kicking and screaming to build a bridge and are going to try and ram a tunnel through, pardon the pun, um, at all costs, just for purely political reasons. So they don't have to answer the question. You know, well, you went well, with a bridge anyway. Why didn't you just leave the first project alone? Thanks. Okay, Ed, Ed, thanks for the call. We just got 30 seconds, Ian Payton. Where do we go on this thing now? Well, where do we go? Uh, first of all, one thing I haven't mentioned is all the different, uh, you know, commercial trucking companies that, that in the morning are lined up for, for kilometers to get through the tunnel. I mean, think of all the things that we have south of the border, the U.S. border, the B.C. ferries, the Delta port, the Campbell Heights, Tilbury Industrial Park, uh, TFN with Amazon, all the big economic development out there that need to get okay. commercial trucks to it. Let's check in with Brett Minear now. Brett is the host of the NL Noon Report on CHNL Radio in Kamloops. He's well known to CKNW listeners, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Brett. Hi, Mike. Good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you, Brett. Thank you very much for doing this. Brett, you wrote a, I thought, a really, really interesting and, and prescient thread on Twitter the other day about the new reality that's facing Kamloops and elsewhere in the B.C. interior from the heat and the wildfires and the smoke. I encourage people to check it out. Uh, I've retweeted it today. Give me a follow on Twitter. You'll find it there. Let, let's start first with the uh, the death count uh, from the heat wave at over 800. What does that number say? I mean, it's kind of an abstract number in some ways, but in, in a lot of ways, I think we're going to find out in the future that this was a shocking number. Yep, and um, I, I, you know, and I think just from talking to emergency, you know, people who are on the front lines, actually in the Lower Mainland. So I, I have family that are first responders as well in the Lower Mainland, and uh, one of them a, a Vancouver firefighter. And uh, I mean, he told me even just like a week ago, he said we're still, you know, waiting for the the stink calls. 
right? The, the, the mm. calls where there's an odor in somebody's building and then, you know, they attend and find a deceased person in there from back during the, back during the heat wave. So, you know, I think wow. it is still expected that there might still be a few people out there that haven't been found yet and that that toll may yet go even higher. And, and of course, the BC Coroner Service is still combing through um, some of the data. So, you know, I, I don't think it would be that unexpected for that figure to climb higher. Yeah, it could very well be. And this is an unprecedented public emergency that we saw with this heat wave. Maybe will certainly will not be the last one. A lot of focus on the emergency response system in the province, the ambulances, the paramedics. But but you think that this was like a wider public health failure, right? Yes, um, I, I mean, I really do, because we 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 knew that extreme heat like like heat that was rather unprecedented uh, i know at least in in our area we knew it was coming for a, for a solid week and i i'm not exactly sure what happened and there's going to be you know obviously the, all those uh, investigations are you know in 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 progress and everything but it seems like a certain level of death was inevitable with this but I find it very hard to believe that there weren't some policy choices that could have been made along the way that could have maybe prevented some of those deaths. More uh, cooling centers opening up, that kind of thing. You, you know, like, Mike, you, you've, you've probably seen it before, images out of, like, New York City and stuff. When they have heat waves, you get firefighters going and opening up fire hydrants and stuff like that in neighborhoods. Like, there's there are things that people can do or that officials can do to try to help uh, people get through, especially those people with air condition without air conditioning, because that right. was the big problem in the lower mainland. But I can tell you, up in the in- interior, as soon as the temperature got over about forty-two degrees, that's when air conditioning systems up here started to shut down. Our own uh, building here at uh, Radio NL every day uh, by about one o'clock it would hit forty-two degrees. By late afternoon it would be forty-six, forty-eight was where we topped out. But the temperature in our newsroom for those days, because there was just no AC. No, no AC was up to the task. The temperature in our newsroom was 35 and a half degrees. And uh, we had to obviously keep on working through that because we started to have fires breaking out, some that were threatening structures right here in Kamloops. There was a major evacuation in the uh, Juniper Ridge area with the uh, Kamloops East fire that uh, sparked off by lightning. So, you know, everybody had to continue on, you know, working. Yeah. Uh, not all of these HVAC systems are, you know, are created are created equal. So there was business closures, uh, restaurants and that kind of thing. Many of their air conditioning systems were, were shutting down and couldn't keep up with it. So, uh, you know, business losses. And now they're experiencing more losses. The, the temperature has receded, obviously, to the low 30s. However, the losses continue because patios and whatnot, you can't have them open in the smoke. And that's actually something we've seen in both 2017 and 2018, uh, restaurants experiencing tens of thousands of dollars in losses over the summer because they can't open their patios. Yeah, I I really think that one of the lessons to be learned out of the the heat dome will be a more robust heat emergency plan that we obviously need for the province that would have to be triggered by these high temperatures. Speaking to Brett Minear from uh, Radio NL in Kamloops, let's talk about those smoky skies, Brett, and the sort of new reality that people are living yeah. with here every summer in the BC interior. What are the conditions like in Kamloops today? Okay, so I just checked the our air quality health index right now as I'm speaking to you is a 7 out of 10. Uh, so that's bad. <laughs> the, okay. we, that's a, it's like golf. That's a number we want to be low. Um, by late afternoon, it's expected to be a 10 plus. So last wow. week when I, I, I basically fled Kamloops, I had an, an extra day off. So I went back down to the lower mainland Thursday night. And uh, on Thursday, when I left the previous three days, had we had seen air quality indexes of 20 plus. Um, that's nuts. So that's, I mean, that's off the, that's off the charts. And, you know, as soon as I got sort of just North of hope between, uh, merit and hope, um, my wife and I were both like remarking, wow, look how green it is. Look how blue the sky is. We actually pulled over kind of near the exit for the Othello tunnels. And I got out just to breathe the air. And, uh, as part of that, uh, you know, tweet stream, I, I included a photo that my wife uh, took of me just breathing the air. And, uh, like, like, it's just so eerie that this is sort of the reality now. Summer 2017, summer 2018, we got a bit of a reprieve. 
2019-2020, but then here we are again, 2021, and it was much, much earlier this year, and we're going to have it for much longer. Yeah, I mean, this is the reality people are living with every day in the interior of our, of our province. And Let's talk a little bit, Brad, about some of the, the points that you highlighted in your Twitter thread about the impacts on, you mentioned the impacts on the restaurant business and you can't sit out on a patio because of the smoke. I know you've been talking to tourism, Kamloops, and other tourism officials in the interior, and they're changing their strategies too, right? Yeah, well, that was a story that I actually, that's not even a story from this year. That's a story from uh, from previous years. Uh, I haven't even looped back to them on it this year because I assume they would just tell me the same thing, that um, especially after the 2017 year, uh, I was told that they were now starting to direct more of their marketing efforts and 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 that kind of thing into uh, promoting the region for later summer, early fall, and uh, into the later spring because summer has become very unreliable. Um, Kamloops yeah. relies, you know, a lot on Rocky Mountaineer. They bring thousands of tourists in and everything, but you know, one has to wonder kind of the impression that is is left with them when they arrive in Kamloops and it's just unpleasant to go outside. You know, of course it's not like that all the time, How? but um, we've had, uh, basically since the heat dome, we've had more smoke days than clear days. We've, we've, yeah. It sounds like we had a clear weekend while I was in, in the lower mainland, but uh, last night, middle of the night, the wind shifted and uh, in came the smoke again, and you smell it in your house. It, 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 yeah. Like, there isn't an escape from it. It's, it's not as bad in the house as it is outside, but you still smell it in the house unless you've got a really good central air system. You know, those are, and, and obviously those are expensive. Not everybody can afford central air with good, like, HEPA filters and all of that. A lot of people have these portable units and uh, window units and that kind of thing, and the smoke gets in with those. Uh, yeah. It's... it's it's miserable. Yeah, and we've seen the impact, as you mentioned, on, on restaurants, on the tourism sector, on the daily lives of people. I wonder if it starts to hit the real estate market, too. You know, for a lot of people who maybe are living in the lower mainland, they might dream one day, well, it'd be lovely to buy a cabin or a cottage on a, on a, little, on a small lake in the interior or something, you know. But I, I wonder if people start to think twice about that with the annual wildfires and smoky skies every summer. I know it's already happened, uh, at least in the Shushwap and the Okanagan, where some people from the Lower Mainland, right, who have summer places up there, have sold. Now, I, you know, I've only heard like one or two of those so far, but that's just, you know, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily easily find out, right? Why? It's a like, factor, though. It's got to be a, for selling. It's got to be a factor in people's minds if this is a, happening every year. Well, it is. So one, you know, one family that I, I spoke to in uh, 2018, I think it was 2017, 2018, they had a place um, in uh, in uh, Kelowna. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously that's, you know, about uh, an hour and a half from here, but uh, they get many of the same types of problems. They found that, you know, when they were coming up from the lower mainland, they ha- had a little girl with uh, asthma and their play, they, they found that there were more. They were getting fewer and fewer days of enjoyment out of their out of their lake property up there because uh, more and more of it was smoke. And obviously, she can't do all the things that the rest of the family can do when when there's smoke. Um, you know, those are inside days. It's they're like rain days essentially. You know, for a lot of people, the streets the streets are empty. And yeah. you know, Mike, just to put it like into some perspective, right? You remember when Burns Bog. Uh, it was on fire back in July of 2016. We're talking about a fire there that closed schools down in uh, like Surrey and other areas of the Lower Mainland. That was only a 78 hectare fire. Right now in Cam- in the Kamloops in, in like the immediate Kamloops area, uh, we're surrounded by let me see one, two, three, four, five, six, se- seven major fires, and that doesn't include all these little ones. These are all fires that are like the smallest one is 289 hectares, and then there's uh, White Rock Lake at 3,000, uh, Tremont Creek, uh, that's the Ashcroft one, 5,000 hectares, Sparks Lake, that is 402 square kilometers that have have burned. And now there's Young Lake, which is looks like it's just actually a spot fire from Sparks Lake, 846 hectares, Lytton Creek, the fire that uh, leveled Lytton, 11,000 hectares, McKay Creek, that's up around Lillooet, 24,400 hectares. Um, and, and you remember the reaction that Burns Bog got in the Lower Mainland, 78 hectares, and it only burned for a few days. This is sustained all around us 
for month for like a month and a half, two months at a time. And it feels crazy when I went down to the lower mainland on the weekend and people seemed barely aware of what was going on. It's on the news, but they don't really, they don't really, I think, get it. And I do kind of wonder whether political attitudes would be a little bit different if it was the lower mainland and Vancouver Island blanketed in this kind of smoke year after year after year. They're great points to ponder, Brett. Thank you for coming on today to talk about the reality people are facing in the interior. We're heard on stations in the interior. We haven't forgot what people are going through. Brett, thank you for coming on to discuss it today. Thanks so much, Mike. Let's talk about coyotes in Stanley Park now. There have been 30 coyote incidents in the park since December. Now some local businesses in Stanley Park saying it's hitting their bottom line. Let's check in with Jerry O'Neill now, president of Stanley Park Horse-Drawn Tours. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Jerry. Thank you, Mike. Thank you thanks, for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Can you tell me what's going on with your business? I'm, like Some people, are what, they're scared of the coyotes, so they're staying away? Very much so. Um, a lot of our, um, a fair amount of our clientele are either families with kids or seniors, and uh, obviously those one, you know, there's many other parks uh, to visit in this city, uh, or for say in the metro van. So they're 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 not coming to the park. That's simple as that. Yeah, and I know that there's some confusion about whether the park is open to visitors or not. And let me play this clip here for you, Jerry, and then get your thoughts. This is Simon Gravel. He's a BC Conservation Officer warning the public about using Stanley Park. Here he is. You have to expect to be able to to encounter a coyote that could be aggressive and attack you. If you choose to use the park, uh, it would be at your own risk. It's, It's impossible for us to protect public from such a coyote attack okay so you got to expect you might be attacked if you go into the park use it at your own risk jerry how has this impacted uh, your tour business yeah well it's unfortunate it was definitely not uh the message that we wanted to hear and i don't think that's the message you wanted to they wanted to send out as well but uh it was probably uh, late on the hours and a bit of a sloppy uh, job, you know, because Mr. Gravel doesn't, might not realize, but he affected a huge amount of people. Um, it, you know, Mike, it should be said that the government have a responsibility to provide us, the businesses, the visitors, the park, and a safe environment. So uh, it's it's unfortunate, really. Um, it's, how can I say, you know, I'm, I'm beyond the point because I'm a little bit sort of a, tired over this has been 16 yeah. 17 months with covid and now the bikes and then the coyotes what is next oh no kidding i mean it's been covid bike lanes and now you got this this business going on how much is your business down well our business haven't done nothing more than about eight percent since 2019 so okay. this year with uh everybody's been uh, a lot of people been on board with vaccine and and so on and i think everyone has done a fantastic job in uh covid here to be preventing um we had hoped this summer will be a little bit better but uh we still haven't been able to get more than 10 percent okay so jerry jerry we just have one minute left you want people to know that the park is the park is open right and you're open for business oh absolutely right? yeah. you know what people should know you know uh, you know the horses our tour goes on the road yeah. There's no way the coyote is going to want to mess up with 2,200-pound animals. And the way we're positioning, it's extremely safe. Um, you know, yes, on the trails, this is a different story. But I, I wish they deal with this a bit more swiftly and uh, more aggressively so that they deal with, with the problem, the issues right now. Yeah, you think the, do you think the coyotes should be euthanized? Well, you know, I don't like the getting rid of animals, but the truth is when animals start to take taste blood and hitting kids, something yeah. drastically needs to happen now. Okay. I mean, I- Mike, let me ask you the question. What would happen if a child get hit, bitten by a dog in your neighborhood a couple yeah. of times, or let's say like 30 times now in the park? I mean, what would happen? Right, well, I think the the question's obvious. I think they have to deal with it more effectively. Jerry, thank you for coming on today, and good luck with uh, Stanley Park Horse-Drawn Tours the rest of the summer. Thank you very much, Mike, for having us. Let's talk about the great leaf blower debate now. Should gas-powered leaf blowers be banned in the city of Vancouver? What about gas-powered lawnmowers? Or weed whackers, should they be banned too? Now, opponents of these gas-powered devices say they not only create 
air pollution from the combustion of the gasoline. They also produce noise pollution. You're out in your backyard, your deck, your front yard trying to enjoy a nice summer day. What do you hear next door? A gas-powered leaf blower. Okay, do we ban them? Wow, I'll tell you what. We talked about this on the show last week. We had a ton of phone calls on this. And let's continue this conversation now with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. And I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, when we talked about this last week, the phone boards just about exploded here. So many people wanted to have their say on it. It's a, it's a divisive issue for sure. You have put a, a motion in a council to ban gas-powered leaf blowers, correct? Yeah, I put, a, I put a motion forward, but because it won't be dealt with until January next year. And the reason is that's because council took a decision for our what's called our DBL department, Development Business and Licensing, to focus on them get, getting through the infamous permitting backlog that holds up housing approvals and renovations and small business permits in the city. So that's the priority right now. And then council will deal with it in January. But council has signaled its, its intent to support this goal of phasing them out over time. Why do you think they should be phased out? Well, I think it's coming. It's inevitable. Um, and it's just a question of doing it in a way that is not punitive to people in terms of the availability and the cost of the electric equipment. Um, this is not new. I think that the city formed a task, an urban noise task force back in 1997. So, you know, 25 years, almost a generation ago. And at that time, leaf blowers and the noise and the disruption to sort of um, quality of life and urban living came up. Um, and it's been going on ever since. So, you know, we see our public body starting to ban them. We see a lot of companies that have gone all electric now in terms of landscaping. Um, and so it's a quality of life issue, but it's also a noise pollution issue, and it's not good for the environment. Right. How loud are these gas-powered uh, leaf blowers? They can be quite loud. The city's noise bylaw um, limits them currently up to 65 decibels, which is very similar to a SkyTrain, if you want to think about a frame of reference or comparison there. Yeah. Um, but I think the challenge is when you hear it, you're trying to work at home. I've been working at home um, doing our virtual council meetings since March in the pandemic. Um, and you've got this incessant noise right outside your window. It's it's pretty difficult to function and it does have a big impact on people. Um, I would say that uh, think about something like the West End where they are already banned. They're not in the rest of the city. And I think that was in recognition to at the time that was our denser community where you had more people living together, um, you know, in sort of a one one neighborhood, one space. But we're seeing that uh, densification happen throughout the city now. Okay. You said something there that people might find surprising, and that is that leaf blowers are allowed to be operated in Vancouver, but not in the West End. I find that strange. Why is that? Well, I think at the time when that was done, and again, a number of years ago, it was because it's there's a, it's a much more dense residential area, um, you know, one of the mm. densest in North America. And so you just have more people living and working side by side. And I think that's, and it became a, a real issue um, for folks. Um, I think why you're seeing this sort of surge in dialogue and discussion around it now is because now we're living in increasingly busy environments. We don't have so much land and so we're building up and people are living in, in smaller spaces and there's just more, we have more neighbors now. Speaking of Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, there was a really interesting opinion poll done in this recently, Councillor, about public attitudes toward a ban on leaf blowers. I spoke to pollster Mario Canseco about it on the show last week. Let's have a listen to what he had to say, and then we'll get your thoughts here. Have Mario Canseco here. There's a lot of people who are working from home because of the COVID-19 pandemic, so they're noticing this type of situation more. When we ask BC residents about this, uh, there's 38% who support their municipality enacting a bylaw that would ban the use of gas-powered leaf blowers, uh, but we have 40% who are uh, not in favor of this course of action. So it's essentially a split, uh, but wow. there definitely seems to be more support in the metro areas than in other parts of BC. Okay, interesting point he made there that during the pandemic, with more and more people working at home, maybe there's more and more people upset about noise, especially gas-powered leaf blowers maybe operated next door or in the neighborhood. Is that your finding as well? I mean, are you hearing that from your constituents? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that that's true because we're home and we're in our environments more. I think, you know, that's what in the poll that Mario talks about really references the fact that this is evolving. Um, and if you think about it, we probably had a similar process around electric vehicles. Um, what you see now in BC, BC has one of the highest adoption rates for electric vehicles um, purchases in North America. And recently people are saying the issue could become supply. 
I actually think we'll see something similar here um, with the lease blowers. It's, uh, you know, when you change habits and behavior, it can be challenging and difficult. But as I said, I just think that this is the evolution. That's where we're headed. Okay. If the city was to phase out these gas-powered leaf blowers and ban them, would that apply to residential owners of these machines? Or what about gardeners or landscaping companies that use these things every day as they go about their their business would they be phased out would they be phased out for everyone or would commercial operators still be allowed to use them no the intent is that they would be phased out for everybody right so the bylaw doesn't discriminate between an individual or or a business Um, but i think the important thing to notice that the suggestion is that we've done over a period of time yeah. So over several years, so that gives people a chance to replace equipment as old equipment wears out, um, and you know batteries and, and equipment will become more cost effective as more people start using it. Okay, electric leaf blowers would still be allowed, though, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Are they are they quieter? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. O- okay. Is what is the process now for this going forward? You mentioned that council is is not set to hear this now for for many more months. I mean, is there any kind of consultation with the public on this, or any kind of vote or referendum on it, or is is it just a vote, a simple vote of council? So yeah, the motion will be on deck for January next year for council to consider, and in that motion, it does ask for consultation to happen with organizations like the BC Landscapers Association or with some strata councils. Um, to give consideration to the impacts and also to look at time for phasing it in. So yeah, there will be a process, and um, the idea is that it would be a it would be a, a gradual implementation. What is your read on the mood of this council on this subject? Like when this comes up for a vote, do you suspect it will pass? Do you have support of other councillors here to go forward with the ban? I do believe it will pass because okay. I think that there's there's two key issues here. There's sort of the sustainability aspect, you know, and you know, gallon for gallon, these things are much more detrimental, leaf blowers are, than actually driving a, a passenger vehicle. Hmm. Um, their, their environmental impact is much more harmful, comparably. Um, and so this is a council that has really taken sustainability initiatives, such as, you know, retrofit to new buildings really seriously. Um, so I think that will that will be important to this council. And I think hearing from residents, just because we get so many emails um, and complaints coming in from people. Okay, would the ban apply only to leaf blowers, or would it also apply to gas-powered lawnmowers and, say, weed whackers or edge trimmers? Yeah, it would be to uh, it would be the gas-powered landscape equipment, so that would include the other devices as well that you mentioned. Okay, okay, gas-powered lawnmowers too. Should we ban gas-powered leaf blowers and lawnmowers in the city of Vancouver? Star ninety-eight ninety-eight on your cell is the number to call me. Let's go to Eric in New West. Hey, Eric, what do you think? Hey, Mike. Great show as usual. Yeah, I'm for the ban, and I'll tell you a couple of simple reasons why. Uh, Read out of the Chicago Tribune, I think it was a month ago, an article that said a uh, typical uh, lawnmower, grass lawnmower, is going to use or create as much pollution running for one hour as a car uses running 350 miles. And even here in B.C., uh, if you look at the EPA stats for that, 33 lawnmowers make as much pollution as a uh, a car produces in a whole year. That's what they're saying. I'm just yeah. reading this off the uh, off the uh, the Google feed. Yeah. So, the other thing I would say is to these guys that are the landscape company guys, they're creating their own problems. If they're complaining about having to give up their gas powered leaf blowers, they create their own problem by gunning the engine unnecessarily. They play with the trigger, man. It's like ring, getting it, getting it, ring, getting it, ring, getting it. Just keep it going steady. Get the job done. Stop playing with it and stop being douchebags. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for the call. Uh, I'm not. They won't be able to, you know, stop gunning the engine on it though if they're completely banned. So this is the one thing I'm wondering about is how this how this will work. Like if you were saying to these landscape companies that use gas powered equipment, you're not allowed to use them in the city of Vancouver. What do they have to buy a completely separate line of electric equipment just to use in Vancouver? And then when they go into Surrey, they can break out the gas powered equipment. Like how is that going to work? And how do you recharge uh, this electric equipment during the day? when you're servicing dozens of different properties uh, you know it'll be interesting to see what reaction we get from commercial landscapers on this idea let's go to hardy on the line in langley hi hardy 
Hey, thanks for taking my call to your last sure. question, Barry. It's going to be like the California car standards for the EPA. Vancouver's going to set the standard, and other municipalities and cities are going to have to follow. Let's face the facts here. We, we just had a major heat wave in, in the lower mainland. I've lived here all my life. The forest fire seasons, you know, are getting worse and worse. Climate change, we've known about this problem for well in excess of 30 years. I'm a mid-50s guy. I remember, you know, living through all this and telling people, if you don't, if you don't do stuff, it's like, it's like when you overeat, you see an overweight guy, and then he has a heart attack, and then he has to take drastic measures, like go to a zero-fat diet. And we're at the drastic measure stage. I remember talking of guys at work. I work a blue-collar job. We are talking about Extinction Rebellion people. And we're, ta- we're going, what a bunch of clowns these people are. I'm going, this is because we've done nothing for 30 years. Drastic action is required. Uh, my only question is, why are we waiting till next January? I mean, we've been twiddling our thumbs with this. I remember this whole argument with the light bulbs, and people were phoning up saying they were heating their houses with the iridescent light bulbs. Yeah. You know, what a, what a bunch of garbage. I mean, the bottom line is, this is going to be drastic because we haven't made the necessary changes for a, a multitude of reasons. There's a bunch of inertia. Government doesn't do stuff. People don't want to. It's a little inconvenient. But yeah. it's, like, it's like the guy having a heart attack. We waited too long, and now we're going to have to do drastic things. And I'm sorry. I mean, we're, we're very good at adapting. You know, we're very good at innovating. There's electric leaf blowers and lawnmowers out there. Yeah. It just makes a lot of sense. I don't know why this hasn't happened years ago, and okay. it's going to happen. Okay, Hardy, thank you for the call. I'm grateful to you for calling in today. Well, uh, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's too much to ask, though, if you are in the business as a commercial landscaper and you rely on this equipment, that the powers that be, at the very least, get the input from you on how this is going to impact your business operations. I mean, if you've got a line of gas-powered equipment that you use every day uh, going to hundreds and hundreds of different addresses uh, in the course of a week or a month, how is that going to work? How are you expected to use exclusively electric equipment? I mean, I would love to hear from some commercial landscapers on this and let me know how that's going to affect your business, your bottom line. You know, would you have to use electric equipment in Vancouver and then you go across town into Surrey or another municipality and now you're allowed to use a different type of equipment you know would you be expected to have a completely separate line uh, of electric of electric equipment on hand and I certainly take your point about these electric leaf blowers and lawnmowers man I got an electric lawnmower and it works it works just fine I mean a lot of this electric equipment is fine it's got good power uh, the batteries last pretty pretty long, and they're pretty good, uh, and it's fine. But I'm not in the commercial business of mowing, you know, 25 or 50 lawns a day. You know, that could be different when you're running a business as compared to someone who's just taking care of their own property. So I, I think that's where the city will, at the very least, have to consult and get input from every sector that's impacted by something like this for sure the noise pollution i get that argument people say that it's the noise of the uh, gas-powered leaf blower lawnmower drives them nuts i can understand that on the other hand uh, how often do you hear it like sometimes you hear a lawnmower going next door i mean how often is the guy next door mowing his lawn uh, 20 minutes and it's over i don't know i think it's an interesting one we'll see if the city has got the jam to go through with it Everyone looking forward to getting back to normal once this pandemic is over. How about going to see a concert again? That's something I really miss. I enjoy live music, especially the big shows with the big stars. You remember when the Rolling Stones announced they would play BC Place Stadium? Oh, man, that was so exciting last year. I really wanted to go see that show, but, of course, postponed when COVID hit. Okay, getting back to normal now. We're starting to see some concerts being scheduled again. Notably, Elton John scheduled to place, uh, play BC Play Stadium on October 21st, 2022. So well over a year from now, surely the pandemic will be over by then. Tickets on sale. And I'm taking a look right now at Ticketmaster. 
Uh, some of the cheapest seats in the house are the nosebleeds up at the very top of the stadium, around a hundred bucks for a ticket. You want to sit on the floor close to the stage. You're looking at eight hundred and sixty-five dollars uh, for in on the floor near the front of the stage. Okay, remember when the BC government promised they would give people some relief on ticket prices by bringing in a ban on ticket scalping bots. This is the computer programs that snap up tickets online as soon as they're put on sale and then offer them for, for resale. Have a listen to this now. This is the uh, the Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin in a recent throne speech talking about this. Have a listen. Last year, government heard from thousands of British Columbians about the unfair sale and resale of concert and event tickets. People are frustrated that companies can buy up large numbers of tickets and resell them at sky-high prices. This year, government will introduce new rules for live ticket sales, including a ban on mass ticket-buying software and more transparency for all companies selling tickets to live events. Okay, that is the promise from the B.C. government, the latest on this. Uh, the new legislation making it easier fit for fans to buy tickets to live events without getting gouged on the secondary market is now in effect in British Columbia. The new Ticket Sales Act, it became effect, the law of the land in B.C. on July 1st. Will it mean that ticket prices are cheaper once we get back to normal here and people start going to concerts again? Let's discuss now with my guest, Professor Pascal Cordy from the University of Victoria, and he studied this issue. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hi, Michael. Thanks a lot for coming on. It's an interesting area of expertise and study that you've pursued on this ticket scalping business. What is the lay of the land right now in terms of uh, ticket scalping or ticket reselling? Are people people still getting gouged out there? It depends for which event. It really depends on the events, right? The the hot shows. It's uh, either they're going to be gouging or your chance to get a ticket is going to be low anyway because there's so much excess demand and at the existing price, not everybody can be served. Yeah, what do you think of the legislation that they've brought into place here in British Columbia? Do you think it will make a difference? I think so. I think it puts quite a bit of structure that was needed. I think now a bus is uh, uh, prohibited. There are penalties. There is an enforcement mechanism. Uh, the main challenge is that uh, resale for profit is, um, you could call that a victimless uh, a crime, in a sense that, um, you know, people will rarely complain. The only people who are going to complain are the people who can't get to the show. But we know that if we set very low prices, not everybody can come to the show anyway. So enforcement is going to be tricky. Yeah, how do these bots work? I mean, a lot of people have heard about these these ticket selling or ticket buying software programs, bots that will snap up huge numbers of these tickets just to resell them at inflated prices. How do these bots work? Are they very common? They are very strategic, and they're going to be common for the best seats in the show that are typically underpriced, and they're going to be common for the shows that are, for some reason, the artist or uh, the team uh, do not want to charge market price. So there are shows that we know in advance that the artists became suddenly super popular and the artist somehow wants to keep fair prices. And then that's a great profit opportunity for the bots. And then, yes, yeah, so they, they, they will try to snap as many tickets as possible. Right. And when the B.C. government says they have now outlawed this, that these ticket-buying bots are now illegal in the province... You mentioned enforcement earlier. Like, how can they enforce that? Like, how do they know if this software or these bots are actually operating and buying tickets? And how can they put a stop to it if they do detect it? So there, there will be complaints. There will be, you can always audit the ticket sales after the fact. So it's very difficult to prevent the bots from uh, hacking the reservation systems. But after the fact, you can look at the patterns and you can easily know whether some sales uh, at certain patterns. You can audit the resale on a StubHub because these bots use very uh, 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 classic platforms and you can require these platforms to help prevent certain type of sellers. 
um, now there is financial penalties. So, you know, if you find that there is a violation, you know, the, there is, you know, you, know, you can uh, investigate and, and expose, uh, impose these penalties. The, the main problem is that a lot of these operators might, might be out of province or out of country. So it's not that simple, but it's possible. You can always cancel access to the, to the show. Uh, some artists have done that. They, there are lots of things that can be done. Okay, speaking to Professor Pascal Corti from the University of Victoria, talking about ticket scalping software now illegal in the province of British Columbia. This whole ticket landscape has changed so much over time. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, if I wanted to go see my, my favorite rock and roll artist, you know, you had to go line up for tickets. I, I remember getting a, a wristband system. If you were first in line, they give you a wristband to maybe come back and buy a ticket later. I mean, that's all gone, of course, now with the advent of Ticketmaster and StubHub and a lot of these other resale markets. It's so complex now. I think it's difficult for the average consumer to really, to really understand it. Like pre-sales, for example, ticket pre-sales. That's become a very murky area that I'm still tr- struggling to understand. How are how are tickets often put on sale in a pre-sale before they go on sale to the general public? Is that common now? It varies from show to show, but yeah, pre-sale is not uncommon. Uh, you also, what's more of a concern is when you put uh, sale, you put holds. So you don't put all the tickets for sale uh, at the advertised price. You, you advertise a, a fairly low price. You create a, a frenzy, and, and then, but you sell only a fraction of the tickets at that price, which is a really good deal. And then after, you sell uh, many tickets uh, directly in the secondary market. So you're totally right. It's very murky. Everything's online. It's, it's less transparent. You, you don't see people waiting in line. You don't have a box office anymore. So yeah. the, the transparency act, uh, the, the, the transparency part of the act also requires uh, primary sellers to to be more clear about uh, when they put uh, tickets directly in the secondary market. Are there any other ways you think government could step in and further regulate these sales or make this more fair? for consumers i mean in british columbia we now have this ticket sales act it's now the law of the land it's in effect here in british columbia do you think there's other things that governments should be looking at or doing in order to make this ticket resale system more fair to consumers you see in the big picture mike i I think things work pretty well in a sense that most of these people they want to make money they sell at the market price and there is little profit opportunities the challenge is when an artist or a team leaves money on the table. It's kind of a gift. And, you know, with, with online systems, what we see now, it's hard to give a gift. Before in the old days, you know, you'd have to go to the store, you'd have to line up. And, but now, you know, these bots and these uh, uh, people, if there's a gift to be, to be received online, a lot of people are going to try to snap it. And there's not much we can do. What can be done is to help the artists to really want to give a gift to, to, to give them the, the, the help them to prosecute those people who are disrupting this kind of uh, lottery, if you want. Okay, it's an interesting area. We'll see if the tickets uh, get more fair or cheaper here going forward. Pascal, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike.